Hello and welcome to season four of the Bible and Me podcast. This is episode 12 of 12 in this series. So join us on this journey as we discover some incredible testimonies of people whose lives have been well and truly changed for the calling of God. In this episode, Nigel Watts is down with Eddie Lyle, president of Open Doors UK and Ireland. Eddie talks about his work in some of the most persecuted countries in the world and the amazing work of Open Doors to share the gospel to such places and preparing the church for persecution. The views expressed by the individual in this podcast may not reflect that of Precept Ministries UK. We hope this podcast inspires you in your daily walk and would love it if you could leave a review or rating so that we can encourage more people to the good news of the gospel. Now, without further ado, here's the podcast. Well, it's a real privilege for me today to welcome Eddie Lyle to the programme. Eddie is president of Open Doors UK and Ireland, uh, an organisation that provides Bibles, Christian literature, training, and also practical support to the persecuted church across the world. Uh, Open Doors is the world's largest outreach to persecuted Christians working in some of the most high-risk places on earth. Uh, Eddie, uh, welcome to the programme. Real pleasure. Thank you. Um, Eddie, how did you come to faith in Christ? Um, Was that as you were growing up or or was that later in life? Or what what was your context of your Christian background and upbringing? Well, I grew up in a very Christianised environment, as my accent betrays. I come from... Northern Ireland, my father was a serving officer in the military. Life potentially was quite threatening <clears throat> during my latter education. My father, uh, of necessity, had to be away with work. Um, uh, and just the troubles at that point in time were invading our lives in every conceivable way in terms of our personal security social life. We'd, we'd lived abroad a lot, um, and in 1969, um, Northern Irish officers were repatriated to release other counterparts. Um, I'd been a choir boy in an Anglican church, as, as was my tradition, came back, um, entered a world that I just f- could not really understand. Uh, there was obviously political issues, but clearly there was a very overt uh, religious issue where people from different parts of the country were at odds with one another because of their political aspirations. And I just could not add this up. And so I was a classic teenager trying to change the world, or so it seemed. Uh, Antrim town on a busy Saturday, a guy walked up to me and said, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Uh, my response was, well, my life is pretty messed up right now. I will listen to any good news that you have. Um, he talked to me about this person called Jesus who I knew in my head. Um, but something happened in my heart. And um, I went home that afternoon. I'm not ashamed to tell you, I knelt down beside my bed. I said to my father in heaven, my life is a mess, uh, and if you can use somebody like me for your purposes, well, then I happily, gladly just offer my life to you. Forgive me for the sins that I've confessed. I need you, Jesus, to sort me out and put me on a path where I can do something with this life that you've given me. And, and what age would that have been? 17. When you were 17 years old. That is amazing. So a guy literally walks up to you. Totally. Mm-hmm. and says, I mean, that sounds like a God incident to me, for somebody to just walk up and directly say that mm-hmm. to you. Yeah, and, and the next day I went to my parish church that my grandfather, who in actual fact was an evangelist, he came to Christ after military service in the First World War, was um, uh, given the military cross for valour for retrieving prisoners um, off the battlefield, um, had a trench commission, came back home, suffered from a thing that we now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Through that, came to Christ. Um, And so during the weekends, he would stand on a a wooden box in a market and preach the gospel of Jesus. And my best friend's grandfather would stand alongside him and sing a hymn 
that would point people towards Jesus. Oh, wow. I went to that church. I'm sure he prayed for me. He died mm. in my first year of life. I would have loved to have known him, mm. have researched his life story, and it's remarkable in so many ways. And I've found two sermons in our family Bible that maybe one day I will preach as in an act of homage to him. <laughs> um, but I went to the church uh, that he had served in um, over many years, stood in front of the altar. I don't know why I did it, but as a 17-year-old, I have a vivid memory of standing in front of the altar in this remote, small Irish community. I opened my hands, which is now uh, a common practice, but in those days, I didn't know why I did it, but I, I prayed the most dangerous prayer that any human being can pray, which is, here, my Lord, please use me, and the rest is history. Really? And you, you said your dad was in the Royal Air Force. Yes, he was. I mean, um, I, I was in the military myself, served a lot with the Royal Air Force. I mean, did he have a faith, your dad? Uh, as I implied right at the very beginning, mm. I grew up in a Christianized environment. Yes. So therefore, it's quite difficult to decompartmentalize yeah. uh, culture yes. uh, from religion yes. when, when it is so intertwined. So yes. therefore, I think both my mother and my father uh, had a strong sense of what was right mm. um, the church was a very determined uh, Protestant uh, church that uh, spoke the truth. Mm. Um, and my childhood memories are fearful memories mm. of the reality as people talked about hell and separation from God. They were not, those messages didn't drive me to God. They actually frightened me and drove me away yeah. uh, uh, from yeah. a form of institutionalized religion. Yes. Uh, it was the courage of somebody to say, there is another story that maybe you've missed, mm. that there is a son, his name is Jesus, yeah. who comes to save, yeah, uh, which is a difficult construct. So my father and my mother embraced their tradition, but I, they would not have uh, what we would recognize as a dynamic faith. Yeah. Before they went to be with the Lord, um, uh, they they had stepped into a different understanding yes. of who he was. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Fantastic. It's a great comfort to me. Uh, amen, amen, mm -hmm. absolutely. Now, you completed your education at Lisbon Technical College mm -hmm. in the late 60s, early 70s, um, and you did a pre-nursing course. Uh, clearly, this did not lead uh, into nursing as you started work as a cargo officer for British European Airways. Yep. Um, afterwards, and did this for three years. Mm. Um, so why not nursing, and why British European? It's it's a great uh, question. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, growing up in Ireland, stories of heroic missionaries. When I became a Christian, I thought, ah, that's the thing that I want to do. I want to. I love people. I, I wanted to help. So, therefore, that kind of quasi indoctrination that sometimes can happen. So. Um, I had very significant uh, education, I think. It, it, it formed me. And I, I think I have become a pastor uh, by default rather than by design as I look back now 50, almost 50 years ago since I came to Christ. But the brutal reality was that at that stage, in general medicine, there was no place for men. There wasn't psychiatric uh, nursing, but that was not what I really thought I was intended to do. And the harsh realities of life require that I get a job. Uh, and so I would say, actually, semi-humorously, that I did my degree in theology in British European Airways <laughs> because I was thrown to the world, yeah. a very aggressive, uh, competitive environment. Um, I had to stand up for myself. And, and as a Christian, I certainly was not going to hide what the Lord Jesus had done for me. So... Mm a form of, I wouldn't call it persecution, but I was made uncomfortable because of the fact that I chose to uh, trade honestly, um, walk humbly before God. And uh, one, I think it's absolutely something that's left out of discipleship uh, then, and it probably still is in so many ways. But when we take up our cross and follow Christ, there is a cost to that. We'll talk later about the cost that persecuted Christians. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I was persecuted. Perhaps I would 
was marginalized, mm. called a holy Jew, etc. But that's mm. small beer mm. in the face of some of the things that we'll talk about later. Yeah. But not to be ashamed of the gospel, no. never to be um, ill-equipped that I could not give a reason for the hope that was within me. Mm. Those were some of the things that I was taught mm. as a baby Christian mm. and what it means to stand up for Jesus. Yeah, very, very, very interesting. Now, some, some seven uh, years later or so, you started working for uh, Youth for Christ. Yeah. So how, how did that come about? How did that tr transition come about and, and start working for Youth for Christ? When I was born, my mother, I was a forceps child, my mother physically lifted me to heaven and she dedicated me to God moments after I was born because she was so delighted I was in one piece and she knew that this gift of lift life that I had been given, she wanted to make sure that it was God-centric. Hmm. She always knew that one day that God would call me. And... Um, the true truth, I will not <clears throat> unembellish it or embellish it, but I was traveling in the United States and uh, I went to church on a Sunday and at the end of the service, Americans are so gracious and welcome and <clears throat> excuse me, kind. I was invited to the front and surrounded by the elders of the church. And this diminutive woman stepped out of the shadows and they made way for her and she came and laid hands on me. I had never seen her before in my life. And she said, God is now calling you to be his servant. And I see the fields, and the fields are white unto harvest, and the labors are few. And I see your feet, and your shoes are worn out in the service of the gospel. But get ready, God is about to speak. Now fast forward two years later, I'm in a London hotel with Clive Calver, the then National Director of Youth for Christ. He has been seconded to Mission England. Billy Graham is arriving the following year, along with Luis Palau. I'd been asked to project manage a national tour to tell the church in the United Kingdom about this season of evangelism. The man who was designing the campaign walked into the hotel. He opened an art folder, and the name of the tour that I was about to project manage on the graphic in front of me, which I'd never seen before, was Prepare the Way. And the graphics behind it were fields that were white under harvest. I didn't tell you that after being given that prophetic word, I went and bought myself in a, a pair of American heavy boots, cowboy boots. And I threw them away 15 years later because they were worn out as I'd traveled the country. But I think reverently that when God speaks to us, we should treasure every word. And if it's deeply personal, we should act upon it and not hide it away. So in simplistic faith, if my feet were to be worn out, I wanted to go and get a pair of boots that I could wear. <laughs> and um, so I became the first business manager of Youth for Christ. All of those years of commercial activity were then catalyzed into, I joined for a year as their business manager to help them over a hump and left after 20 years. Oh my goodness me, really, 20 years you were with them. Yeah. And what are some of the things you saw during that time? Hundreds of young people had discipled. I think I had involvement with over 400 youth workers in training. I should say that in that season of evangelism, Watching what Billy Graham did under the hand of God and Luis Palau, I saw thousands of people come to Christ in that situation. Um, in those days, Youth for Christ was pioneering remarkable things like churches and nightclubs. Um, they were in front of hundreds of children every day, thousands of children every day in school, uh, sharing a contemporary gospel that they mm. could understand. Mm. But I became transfixed with this idea that if we were to face the nation in all of its darkness, we needed youth workers that were capable of being able to contend that firstly, they understood the word, they could apply the word, they could communicate the word in language that people could understand. Mm. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They knew what their spiritual gifts were. They knew how to stand up for Christ um, and courageously stand for Christ in very difficult situations. Mm. And so we developed together a three-year training program that would take 
probably somebody like myself with a heart after God, but didn't have the skill set and developed a worker that was capable of innovating as a missionary in the world of young people. Mm. And uh, today, as I preach all over the country in festivals, it's not uncommon for me to meet half a dozen young men and women who will come to me who say, I'm now a leader of a church or I'm doing this for God. And, you know, just saying mm. some positive things mm. about how those years of discipleship training yeah. uh, were, were yeah. shaped. God's gracious, isn't it? He gives us glimpses. Yeah. Every now and then, to, mm-hmm. to just to yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah to encourage us. Now, um, you left Youth for Christ in 1999 mm-hmm. to go and work for um, an organisation called Release International. Mm-hmm. So, my question: Why did you leave Youth for Christ, having explained the amazing work that was going on there? Mm-hmm. And tell us about your work with Release International. Um. In the last five years of my ministry in Youth for Christ, I was quite seriously ill with cancer. It came as a thief in the night. A young doctor spotted something in a, in a medical, um, and within nine days I was in intensive care, and major surgery, and by God's grace, uh, he, he healed me. Um, he healed me through the NHS, and he healed me by his Holy Spirit. Uh, and in the emergence of four months coming out of major surgery, I was married, uh, had had a little boy um, of uh, two and a half years of age. Uh, it was a very dark time. It was a dark night of the soul. But God spoke to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm going to write a new chapter of your life. Get ready. Uh, there's been so much... Uh, recurring theme of my life where, you know, we all love Psalm 23, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he's been so kind to me that for many of us, I think transition is a really painful, challenging time where our lives are deconstructed, usually in order that they can be reconstructed. But he's always given me a heads up. He's been a very good shepherd to me. He's always giving me the kind of get ready because he knows that in my heart I'm quite an insecure human being. Um, And so as I emerged into the convalescence time, I went to the chairman of my board and said, I believe God has spoken to me. Would you watch over me? And it was a very helpful conversation. At that stage, I was in my mid-40s, you know, and I I think I need to be pretty direct in this conversation. Sometimes leaders can stay too long in a situation. They become comfortable in it uh, and they become comfortable in the situation and they lose their sharpness and vitality. And I think after nearly 20 years with Youth for Christ and 10 to 15 years of voluntary youth work before I went into that sector, you know, there came a point in time where I realized that it, it would be appropriate for me to seek the next chapter of my life. I knew it would be uncomfortable. I knew it would be challenging. I knew potentially it might be uh, threatening because new can always be threatening. Um, but uh, I became aware of the organization Release International uh, and the fact that they needed a new chief executive officer. And I was operating at a a level of seniority within uh, Youth for Christ, directing the work in Scotland. And they wanted to rethink the raison d'etre of the mission following the fall of the Berlin Wall and to rebrand and offer new vision uh, to a ministry that had been set in motion by the remarkable Romanian pastor, Richard Wormbrand, who lived suffered for 13 years in solitary confinement because he was a Christian under the regime of Ceausescu. Um, and, and against all of the odds, uh, I, I later became aware of the caliber of people that were stepping forward to fulfill this role. I was chosen to be the new leader. And at that stage, I was aware globally of of an issue of the persecution of Christians, but I didn't understand it intimately. Um, 
but the board felt that I was someone that they could work with, learn with, explore with, and take risks with, and that's what it took, because um, the ministry, um, as is so often the case, um, had reached a stage where it needed to be refreshed by God, or um, uh, brought to an end. And that was my remit to find out what the Lord wanted to. And I'm humbled that God breathed upon the ministry and renewed it. And today it is dynamic and doing really well. I continue to support it uh, and invest in it prayerfully. And, it, and it's a huge privilege. But for me, over those six years of turning that organization around, seeing it restaffed, uh, brought into a, a place where it knew what it was there to do um, and was, I think, doing some very, very effective work in some very challenging environments, uh, which was a very acute learning curve for me. That's where I did my apprenticeship. I traveled extensively into very difficult and threatening environments, met remarkable people and, and saw God do some pretty miraculous things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I, I th latterly, I had the huge privilege of standing by Richard Wormbrand's grave and seeing him laid to rest um, and to again understand uh, the power of the gospel um, and the fact that God said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church and to understand more of the, the writings of this man. He wrote a, a remarkable book called Sermons in Solitary Confinement. The one there was a moment where in the darkness of his soul, where he was been giving drugs that were warping his mind, he'd been tortured horrendously. One day he asked Jesus if he would come and visit him. Uh, and in the darkness of his mind, he took his finger, licked his tongue, and drew a smiley face on the prison door because he wanted Jesus to meet a happy face when he visited. Now, one could say that that is either heretical or it's completely abjectly nonsensical. I saw it as something incredibly beautiful mm -hmm. from a humbled soul mm -hmm. um, who needed his savior, who needed the courage to stand against these insurmountable odds mm. um, and to see Jesus' name glorified. And so I count it as one of the great privileges of my life to have come close to the Wormbrand family, to the Fellowship of the International Christian Association that continues, and, and to the great work that Paul Robinson and his team at Release do today. Yeah, yeah. fantastic, fantastic. Now, 2005, you became the... Uh, Chief Executive Officer of Open Doors UK and Ireland, uh, with whom you have worked ever since. Um, can you give our listeners a, a brief explanation of when Open Doors came into being as, as an organisation um, and the essence of its work uh, amongst uh, the persecuted church? I'd love to. Uh, I think all of our listeners today will have heard of Brother Andrew, uh, the author of God's Smuggler. Yeah. Um, this um, Dutch missionary, yeah. it's really important to say that Open Doors is a Dutch ministry um, that matters all around the world today. Um, uh, Andrew did his theological studies in Glasgow, where I was a couple of weeks ago. So a Dutchman who had no English going to Glasgow to learn English and theology, it must have been a God moment to direct him that way. Do they speak English in Glasgow? Uh, my wife is Glaswegian, so <laughs> I'd better say absolutely. But I do speak Scottish and English and Irish, being humorous for a second. But this uh, remarkable man, in the final stages of his studies, had a word from God from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 2, which, uh, whichever way it's rendered the one that I'm most comfortable is awake and strengthen that which remains. Uh, that led him to taking a suitcase of Bibles to a communist convention in Eastern Europe and gave Bibles out. Uh, that was the beginning of what is now called Bible smuggling. Um, uh, Richard Wormbrand indeed did similar things. 
behind what the, what was called the Cold War, that we now need to educate people about what it's about. But in those days, there was a Berlin Wall, and there was uh, a communist world, and there was purportedly a free world. We'll maybe talk about what a free world might be, and what are the benefits or defaults of it in today's society. And so from those very humble beginnings, and Andrew driving in a VW Beetle, you'll see one parked around the corner that we hope continues to inspire people, but he prayed that prayer, Lord make seeing eyes blind and hearing ears deaf. And that was the beginning, that was with the birth throes of an organization now that works in well over 70 nations around the world where Christians share our faith but not our freedoms. So initially church leaders wanted Bibles, then they wanted hymnals, then they wanted training. Um, then they wanted encouragement, um, they wanted to print the Bible for themselves, they wanted to do translation. So we see our job very much not as operating a franchise, but to say to the persecuted church, what do you need and how can we serve you so that you might take the gospel to the people that you are called by God to serve. So in that, in that way, we see ourselves as servants and indeed um, standing in alignment with those verses from Scripture about strengthening that which remains. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the global dynamics of, of what we're doing today, it could look like something approximately like 3.5 million Bibles and pieces of Christian literature being brought into accessibility by people who live in restricted nations would probably sound like a similar number being trained. It would sound like a quarter of a million small business enterprises being started to help Christians survive because many are ostracized the moment that they turn to Christ. In your introduction, one thing that we didn't include was advocacy. Mm. Uh, so today we would be working, I think, very dynamically with the United Nations um, the European Union national governments and what we think is the beginning of a stirring of awareness about the persecution of Christians as a critical part of basic human rights. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the scriptures say that you're blessed when you're persecuted. Scripture says that if you live a holy life, you will be persecuted. Uh, but I think that in the 21st century, where there is rabid injustice, where there is brutality, where there are crimes against humanity, we've got to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Therefore, advocacy is a critical part of what we do in terms of speaking to power on behalf of people who have no power. Um, and we would only operate in that way if mandated by local church. And so big campaigns that we've been doing over the last couple of years um, to try and speak up for uh, current campaign is Hope for the Middle East. We were mandated by church leaders across the Middle East to engage with the United Nations and national governments to help them advocate for what is now beginning to be the reconstruction of some of the societies that have been um, overwhelmed by war as mm. Syria re-emerges, mm. as Iraq mm. re-emerges, as other parts of the Middle East mm. re-emerge. Mm. There is a common cause that the Christian witness would not be uh, denied mm. and that Christians would be playing a critical part in the emergence of these new societies and cultures as peacemakers. Mm. Where, where would you... Um where would you say the persecution of Christians is on the rise, particularly? Are there, are there mm. places where particularly you've seen in the last, I yes. don't know, uh, months yeah. or years, you, think, you know what, this is really getting mm -hmm. uh, beyond what we have seen in the past? Yeah, one of the things that I really love about Open Doors is the fact that so much of our work is driven in partnership, but also we have uh, an area that we've been developing, which is research and analysis. So each year we present um, a, a, a report which is called the World Watch List. And this is now an internationally recognized piece of benchmarking that says these are the places where the 
Christian church is most under pressure. So number one out of those 50 nations would be North Korea. It's been in that place for about 17 years, um, very closely now followed by Afghanistan. So the top five, for instance, would be North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, mm. Sudan, Pakistan, let me continue, Eritrea, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, Iran and India. And I, I think mm. th that's a very helpful cross-section because there may well be between 70 to 100,000 Christians in prison in North Korea. But very few people understand that there is an underground church in North Korea of over 400,000 Christians that are looking to their brothers and sisters outside Korea for prayer and for support because they are, they are passionate about the evangelization of their country. <laughs> and I've just had the huge privilege this year of traveling with two escapees that have survived those gulag situations. One of them, both of them actually planted churches inside those situations. Um, and just to hear their stories about a church that, you know, there are more buried Bibles in North Korea than any other place on earth where people put their Bibles inside glass jars, bury them in secret places, take them out at night time and read them and bury them again. They, they listen to clandestine radio programs that are coming out from the free world to help them be discipled in their faith. Um, just really tender, beautiful people that have had this encounter with Christ and will not deny what has happened to them. Um, and they live in a constant surveillance state. So I think we, we look to North Korea for the walls ideologically of Juche, which is the state ideology to fall, and to see that country redeemed for Christ mm -hmm. through these people that have God has put his hand upon. So. It's interesting that so many of the places I'll talk about briefly are right in the headlines of global news right now. Um, so that, that's a great help actually to keep the church on its toes in prayer. But if there were to be two other places that I'd like to use this interview to highlight, the other one would be India, mm. which has leapt up the world watch list particularly and is now positioned at position 11. And we're seeing in that situation the rise of fundamentalist Hinduism, um, where for the last 150 years, the church has been playing a critical part in education and hospital care and the training of missionaries and so forth. Now, under President Mordi and a, and a very clever uh, system, um, large Christian missionaries have been um, uh, closed down and their operations uh, completely cancelled out under state legislature. And Christians are being threatened at, at what I would call an industrial level now in terms of persecution. And on the face of it, um, India seems to be impervious to the concerns of the global community. Um, Thankfully, we believe that God answers prayer yeah. and that he has a long-term purpose for India. Yeah. Um, so I think in the face of what we would call chronic persecution, India is a place where we would love our listeners today to take an active interest. Now, what do I mean by an active interest? That means to become informed. And so in Open Doors, we make a huge effort to try and make it easy for people to learn about what's happening. So our website is www.opendoorsuk.org. Uh, look into the World Watch List. You'll find all of the top 50 nations where the church is persecuted. You can read some background, but I'm delighted that we have a little prayer section at the end, which gives people an opportunity to put feet to their prayers yeah. and to become intelligent and to watch it in the media mm -hmm. and to use their democratic right uh, to write to mm. government to say yeah. we're concerned about this. Absolutely. I mean, Christianity, um, we would say this, wouldn't we? But it is the best news. If you look at um, 
what Christianity is all about and the fall of mankind and sin and, I mean, <laughs> who wouldn't want to be a Christian with a clear explanation of who Jesus is, why he came, what he offers? There is no better news. So my question is, why are Christians being persecuted so violently in a world which so desperately needs Christ? I think it's a great question. and Thankfully, it's not the first time that I've been invited to answer that question. And I, I, I want to be quite clear. Uh, you know, I quoted the little verse about loving justice and acting mercifully, and, which is core to who we are. We're a justice people. But what I'm talking about today isn't just about politics. It's, it's, it's not to do with culture. Um, it's not to do with good causes, because for many, uh, they look upon Christianity as a Western import, a pollutant uh, that is destroying identity and the very substance and fabric of a society that has stood for thousands of years. That's one paradigm upon looking at what Christians are and what they do. And if we look at history across the Middle East, Christianity... Uh, on occasions has not acted with clean hands. And so the one thing that I've learned over these last two decades of traveling the world uh, is that one enters a, another culture with acute um, uh, humility and, and not a lot of opinion. Um, one is there to listen and to learn in humility. Um, and I've learned by my mistakes. The other thing that I want to say is that as Christians, we should look at these situations not intrinsically through the eyes of global media. We need to look at this biblically. And so in the book of Ephesians, it says that we fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We have an enemy. We've not spoken about him up until now. Mm. But there is a dark force that has contended against the kingdom of God from the book of Genesis right through today until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. He has an agenda, which is to snuff out the light. He has an agenda to oppress the church, to conspire against the purposes of the kingdom of God. And we see that right through every chapter in Scripture where there is a contention against the purposes of God. And so through the eyes of the New Testament, so let's remember this, that the New Testament was written by persecuted Christians for persecuted Christians in the context of persecution. So therefore, the persecution of Christians is normal, not abnormal. So therefore, if we follow Christ, we should expect persecution. And what I love about living and breathing and moving with the persecuted church is that they read their lives through that paradigm of the normality of persecution. They draw their identity, their link with the forefathers that have gone before them. They believe that they're surrounded by a host in heaven through the window of the book of Hebrews, that they're surrounded by a host in heaven who've lived and have gone through persecution and they have a, an indestructible link with those, their forefathers, and they're living out their moment in history as people who are carrying the cross of Jesus valiantly in the societies that we live in. I talked earlier about North Korea, then I talked about India. The third area that we're concerned about is sub-Saharan Africa and just, again, the sense of the advance of Islam into those communities. And part of our work is to prepare the church for persecution. And so that very thing that I'm talking about, core uh, to the, the very way within which we train, is to help people look at the gathering storm through the eyes of Scripture and how they can be faithful to this season within which God has put them. And so if we look comparatively between the church in the West um, and the church in the persecuted world and the church in the East, which is not persecuted, I think our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church, we actually do need them. 
sometimes people supporting the persecuted church lose a fundamental uh, truth, which is they think that they're helping the persecuted church. But actually, if they were to look a bit more deeply, they would see how much the persecuted church is helping them. Yeah. How are they helping them? Well, they demonstrate endurance and passion and conviction. And they know so much about prayer. And they know so much about the memorization of Scripture mm -hmm. and how Scripture is core to their survival mm -hmm. as their divine sat-nav to get through life and the struggle that it is to be a Christian in those environments. Yeah, and so, again, iconically, North Korea, India, where the church is under such pressure, and then our brothers and sisters in sub-Saharan Africa, these are three big areas of contention about uh, why it is so important for the church to be aware. Yeah. Uh, and of course, how could we not lose sight of the Middle East and mm, mm, all that is mm, still yet happening mm, in mm, Syria um, mm. and across that, that whole region? Goodness me, goodness me. It's, it's, it, it doesn't sound good, does it? But we know that God is sovereign. Um, well, if you talk to our brothers and sisters yeah. there, they see this <laughs> as the time where God is shaking the nations. They yeah. see that as good. Yeah. They have a strong sense of their identity. They are the children of God. Yeah. Their job is to be faithful for their moment, not necessarily to understand everything, but that childlike faith is yeah. such a beautifully potent thing that, that inspires them and causes them to move towards a level of intimacy that I personally yeah. am still striving for. Yeah, and you read in the book of Acts, don't you, when Peter, before the council, and you know, mm -hmm. and they come out praising the Lord that they've been suffering they've been counted worthy to, to suffer. And you think, oh, yeah. my goodness me, you know. Mm -hmm. I want to turn um, to the Bible. Um, sure. you, you've obviously mentioned the Bible. You, you, you've quoted some verses there. Mm. Um, personally now, how, how important is the Word of God to you? And, I think, what, and why? I think the older that I have become, and I'm quite old now, really, <laughs> uh, I've become more dependent upon the Word rather than less dependent on the world word. I, I was with a, an Egyptian uh, church leader a fortnight ago, um, and he took me to the book of Lamentations, which, as we all know, is not a particularly happy book in so many ways, but he shared with me personally two verses that, that I want to read today from uh, Lamentations 3, verses 22, 3, 4, and 5. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait patiently for the salvation of the Lord. That's verse 26. Mm. My brother is the same age as me. Uh, we have known each other for 14 years. I've stood with him in Tahir Square with CS gas in the atmosphere, uh, seen violence and struggle together um, and he told me just this time round, he said, I will never leave Egypt, no matter how terrible it gets, I'm called. And he said, these are the verses that hold me there and my wife and my children. There are days when things are really difficult. But he said, the true truth is buried in this book of lament. Because of God's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. And uh, life as a leader is difficult. I think life being a Christian is difficult. But if you're asking me, which I think you are, about how important is the scriptures, I, I come to this. This is my sanity. Uh, I'm just in this work, issues, stories that I've become aware of today where Christians are just in a really difficult place. But, you know, their narrative is the same as my narrative. Their book is my book. They are people of the book. 
I, I have a long way to go. You know, in Vietnam, you're not given a Bible until you memorize Psalm 119. Last time I looked, maybe 157 verses. Maybe you can correct me if that's right or wrong. Well, it's a very long psalm, and it's, it's all about the Word of God. <laughs> it is, it is, and about finding him in hard places, because yeah. I, I think... Uh, the Psalms read you rather than the other way around, yes. <laughs> my experience. But coming back to Lamentations, this has become my mantra. I've printed this out, this verse. I've laminated it. I've put it on my study wall at home. And, and I've been thinking about it again through some, some difficult issues over the last couple of weeks. This is the truth. I think there's all kinds of words and people around the world that are talking about true truth and false truth, but this is the true truth. This book, you know, in the Bible there are 774,747 words, uh, 66 individual books written across 1,500 years by 40 authors. You know, that holy revelation of God's purposes and critique of humankind, the fingerprints of a God of love and mercy and forgiveness and redemption are all over it. But if there was to be a meta-theme, one overarching statement over the Word of God, I believe it's something like, I will never leave you or forsake you. You will never be ashamed. Mm. And I, I think as I approach my 66th birthday now, everyone can take their computers out and the, <laughs> the truth is out. Uh, this word has taken over more of me than it has ever taken. Um, uh, I, I've a huge appetite for understanding how to read the world but and the circumstances within which we live. But at this stage in life, I increasingly turn to this holy book to look at the world rather than the global media. Mm. And, and this reads human hearts better. Mm. than any biography or mm. autobiography. Oh, amazing, amazing. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we haven't really spoken about uh, about the, the work that the Lord's called us to with Precept, but it's interesting, you know, you work in some very difficult circumstances, Christians supporting them, encouraging them mm. in their faith. And, um, you know, Precept, to a large extent, is involved, uh, you know, we don't talk about it so much, um, but... Um, Precept reaches out to people across many of the countries that you've mentioned mm -hmm. uh, in very difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, I probably can't sort of talk on air about some of them, mm -hmm. um, uh, the stories that I've heard of, but it, it is incredible, literally people putting their lives mm -hmm. on the line, because of course you found in, in a situation with the Bible, it's literally the death mm -hmm. sentence uh, in many places. Yeah, I spoke about North Korea, to be found with a Bible in your possession oh. immediately consigns you, your family, and your family's family to go to prison because it is a subversive piece of literature. It's yeah. a criminal offense to be found with a Bible yeah. in your possession. Yeah. But yet we are being asked to provide more and more Bibles <laughs> for Christians who are aware of the cost, but the value to have this book in their own yeah. hands. We have yeah. you know, so many shared interests in this interview, which is why I was very keen uh, to meet you and to have mm. this conversation today. Mm. Mm. Um, the other thing I feel impressed to talk about are the spiritual disciplines, because yeah. we don't talk very much about them. Um, and at this stage in, in my journey, the importance of um, retreat, uh, um, the importance of silence, the importance of the reading of Scripture, the memorization of Scripture, of fasting and prayer, um, I think we need to see a renaissance of those disciplines um, being modeled and taught as being core to what it means to be a follower of Christ mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. Our Lord taught us uh, what going into the desert was all about. He taught us rhythms of prayer to be alone, uh, intimate with God. Um, the disciplines of listening more than speaking. Um, the word, uh, uh, the, the word resonates from book to book to book about the importance of this word having its way in our lives yeah. and 
guiding us that our blood would actually be bibline yeah. Yeah. Uh, is is so important mm. and um, I cannot emphasize how much the persecuted church have been core um, to this thinking and mm. this mindset mm. that I that I now own yeah wonderful and if you're listening and you you are you've been inspired by what Eddie has been saying about uh, the importance of the Word of God and as he's got older he's found it becoming more and more important um, then do get in touch with us um, we may be able to help you start on that journey of of taking time out to be quiet before the Lord and give you some practical skills and tools for um, seeing what the word says, understanding what it means in its proper context, and then most importantly, living it out, really, living it out. So um, my final question I want to ask you, what's next for Eddie Lyle? But I also ask people, which I haven't asked, do you have a specific, I mean, you've mentioned your verse, do you have a, a favourite verse um, yeah, I do. It's Proverbs chapter 3, verses okay. 5 and 6. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Yep. Yes, that's uh, okay. Do you want to... Um... Happily, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Yeah, fantastic. That's a pretty good one, or pretty good couple. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I also like um, Proverbs 20, verse 29. The glory of a young man is their strength, but the splendor of the old man is their gray hair. Or in my case, no hair whatsoever. Um, uh, but yeah, that's just slightly being a, a little frivolous for the moment. Yeah. But I, I've, those verses from Proverbs yes. have been with me since almost the first day I came to Christ. Um, and they've been my guide and... Uh, my sense of, of direction. Um, I look back now over uh, 40 years in Christian ministry um, and in the just the transformation that God has brought about in my life, I, I see just the truth of those wisdom words uh, written across my heart and my life and my story. Eddie, it has been an absolute privilege to talk to you today. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think I said just before the interview uh, that I was coming up to speak to you uh, and about Open Doors, and, and the, the folks I spoke to immediately said, oh, Open Doors, oh, one of my favourite organisations and charities, they do such great work. So uh, may the Lord continue to bless you as you, you seek to bless others in very difficult circumstances and bless you in your communication of that. I know you've been very busy just recently in Scotland and Ireland and here, uh, meeting lots of people, encouraging them to get behind your work. Mm. And, uh, you know, if we ourselves were in those circumstances, uh, we would want our fellow brothers and sisters to come alongside us and support us in practical ways. So, mm. so if you're listening uh, and you're not a supporter of Open Doors, I would encourage you to check them out and do what you can uh, as led by the Lord to do just that. So thank you so much. A real pleasure. Nice to meet you. You were just listening to the final episode of the Bible and Me podcast. If you enjoyed this series, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It greatly helps us out as a ministry to share these testimonies as great encouragement and even as a witness to non-believers. Series 5 will be out later this year and for the meantime, why not check out other series available on iTunes and Blueberry. But from us here at Preset, we want to thank you for your continued support and we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you.